GoLoud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect GoLoud Sounds better with us Do you want to know what the future is going to be like? Do you want to know more of what the present really is when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence? Today's guest on Magnified is a specialist in artificial intelligence. She has built a company called Soapbox Labs, which is doing remarkable work in teaching children better use of language. And indeed, since this particular episode of Magnified was recorded at my kitchen table, within the last fortnight our guest Patricia Scanlon has actually sold the business to a big American company called Curriculum Associates so that acquisition is not something that we got into but I was speaking to her about how AI is used at present her role as Ireland's AI ambassador and the issues and the opportunities and the problems that AI will cause for us in the future She's a fascinating speaker. It's a fascinating topic. And I'd like to thank again our partners on Magnified, uh, which is Strategic Power Connect, a company very involved in the future that we need in this country in relation to renewable energy and sustainability. And we're delighted we have them as partners, particularly as the topic is one that I address looking to the future in my new book, Who Really Owns Ireland? That's something different. This is our latest Magnified. This is Patricia Scanlon. Patricia Scanlon, thank you so much for joining me here. Now, you would be an AI ambassador for Ireland. Is that an advocate for AI? And actually, you know what? You better explain for our listeners what AI is, because the Irish joke is, sure, we know about AI, it's artificial insemination, <laughs> every farmer knows it. So tell us about AI, modern AI. So AI, it's very hard to get a definition that anybody agrees on, but AI would generally be where a machine can perform a task that would normally require human intelligence. So that's very broad. Um, you know, sometimes when people refer to AI, they actually kind of draft in all automation. So when... The Biden administration talks about AI and they draft uh, regulations, not regulations, but guidelines and guardrails. They actually mean all automation. But over here in Europe, we're very caught up in the definition of AI being more about the learning um, that a machine does with lots of data before it can actually start to, to, to make sense of new data. Okay. It's still confusing to the layperson, I think, isn't it? Isn't the problem? And there's a fear thing has developed as a result of the potential for it to change everything for us, take our jobs, uh, mislead us in what we're reading or seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, um, a little bit of a an issue at the moment that we have this kind of conflation of ideas, right? So what you often, people need to understand is that there's a couple of different types of AI, which all technology, you can probably break them up a little bit. Um, there's narrow AI, which is more like expert systems that we would have understood from the last 10 years, you know, like your speech recognition systems, your Netflix recommender, your social media feed, right? They're all very expert systems specializing in one particular task. And then you have... Sorry, Jen- could I just yeah, go there? Because 
That is very interesting because I suppose it emphasises that perhaps without many people knowing it, that artificial intelligence is already a major part of their lives. No, that's true. Yes. And, and I think that's because ChatGPT exploded into our lives earlier this year. Um, most people think it's new technology or just new developments, but you're right, like it's been, you do use AI every day. Your, your predictive text on your phone is AI. Um, you know, very simple things like that are AI. They're just narrow AI systems that have been built for a very specific need. And what we saw then, even like September last year, was the, the first kind of generative AI stuff to kind of hit the public uh, sphere. The Pope in the puffer coat, you know, that's, uh, that was generative AI generating a new uh, image that's never been created before. But um, And all it took would have been a prompt, you know, somebody typing the words hope in a puffer coat like you know that kind of thing and then chat gpt is what really captured everybody's imagination because it was so easy to use they gave us a lovely interface that meant you could ask questions and i think putting technology in everybody's hands really does a lot to help people understand it so if anybody is wondering what is all the fuss about they haven't yet tried it simply trying chat gpt and asking it a question getting it to explain something to you um there's a lot you hear a lot about people talking about hallucinations where it gets stuff wrong. Um, but generally speaking, if you ask it to explain something that you know really well and let's say you're an expert in, you'll be quite shocked at how well it explains it. If you struggle with concepts, you know, a certain concept, you can actually ask it and a great phrase, explain like I'm five, you know, get it to explain something to you and it'll break it down in very succinct pieces. You can dive in where you need to. So all of that has meant that it's kind of brought that technology that's very deep nuanced technology that's very hard to understand right into everybody's lives where previously we didn't know we were really using AI you know that's kind of where I think the the conversation has started and let me just go back again maybe to one of the more simple ideas of it just take Netflix because I'd imagine nearly everybody who's listening to this has Netflix or has used Netflix the recommendations that Netflix makes are different for everybody, aren't they? Yeah. So that would suggest that the AI at play knows an awful lot about you personally and your likes and dislikes. Yeah, 100%. It's been however long you've been using Netflix, um, it has been taking that data and building a, a very personalized profile for you, which is why it gets really annoying if your kids start using your Spotify you know, and suddenly, if you just keep all the accounts separate, it will, they generally get very good at your likes and dislikes. Once you start conflating with your kids, it starts getting a little bit worse, um, you know, because it won't know who's using it. So, yes, it's a data being gathered for a long period of time and tuning something much bigger than that to your likes and dislikes. And does that explain why it is, and sorry, we jokingly say here at home at times that, we're interested in something. Say, for example, I'm getting a new bed for my daughter's room and suddenly I see ads popping up on my feeds of where I can go and get a bed. And I'm thinking, hang on, I don't think I searched that. Has that been listening to my conversations or something? You think the pro yeah, that's it's such a thing that comes up so often. I think the problem a little bit of that is is that we don't realise how much data is being gathered about us. It's it's they call it the creepy valley. They try to not creep us out by actually letting us know that they know so much more about us. There's a lot of data sharing between companies as well that is, you know, often not that transparent. So let's say you were talking about a bed and something like that, but maybe somebody in your family went and searched it. Um 
maybe a friend, you had a conversation with somebody, a friend, and then they start searching something and it pops up in your feed because there's a network. They, they know who, who's networked. They actually know, they know people's location. If you happen to go into a bed shop or something, we don't know the network of information that's there. So sometimes you could argue, you know, people like, oh, it's listening. And I'm like, oh, no, what it knows about you is a little more creepy than <laughs> what you think it's listening. Like, you know, we've given up so much of our, our data already um, in our general use of email, uh, social media, Netflix, that, you know, it builds a picture. And, you know, should we be worried to... about that? Or is it, does it actually make for just a more convenient, better lives? For well, us? that's, you know, that is the argument is that um, you get better stuff served. You don't get annoying ads. You'd probably actually quite like the ads that have been served you. It's very personal. I'm the type of person who every time, you know, the, the privacy policy pops up, even if I desperately need to want to get on the website, I, I disagree with everything before I go into any website. I even my kids doing that, like, you know, just, that's just my habit. Like, you know, or some people choose to use technology that they think is more offline or data protected. Apple have really doubled down on that kind of um, marketing. I remember in CES one year, they had this big sign up saying, you know, um, what goes on your phone stays on your phone, you know, like what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. They were kind of playing on that a little bit. Like, you know, they, they arguably could do more in that, that they do a lot to remove um, personal information from the data that's gathered for AI purposes. I'm just trying to think about how helpful or not it might be. And, you know, sometimes is it limiting that if you have the algorithms that sort of keep you almost within a box according to your declared tastes and preferences. And yet, I just come into mind that even using Spotify in recent months with recommendations has opened up to me loads of music that I actually hadn't heard, which I'm now loving and has actually broadened my range. So I suppose that goes against the idea that it's limiting. Yes, yeah, so what they would have done there is looked at all the music you like, find it other people who like similar music, but they've branched out here or there and then they're sharing those likes with you. You know, so now... And, and the way they choose to get some, recommendations from friends. Yeah, it's kind of like that, except they're not your friends. You just don't know them. But, you know, but equally it kind of works, you know, stuff that you're listening to that somebody else done that would be shared with them. So in some ways it does make stuff better and more personal and more targeted. Just not everybody chooses to, to want that. And that's where, we, you know, there should be choice. Okay, we'll get back to some of that stuff in a little while, but I want to ask about you and how you got into all of this. Oh, gosh, long time ago. Um, so I'm, I'm an engineer, I am electronic engineering, DIT Kevin Street. Um, I ended up working in automation, actually, when I left um, college, because, you know, automation was, you know, AI was such a burgeoning technology. And then I started a PhD uh, in 2000 in UCD. And it was on, it was an AI kind of speech recognition. You must have been a prime mover in that though, were you? There weren't many people doing that at the time. There, there? there was. I mean, AI and speech recognition has been going on since, I mean, in theory, 50s and 60s, more practically, 70s, 80s, even 90s, um, there would have been very bad speech recognition. You know, there definitely was. Um, Dragon, naturally speaking, Microsoft would have had some speech. It was just terrible and it would be so frustrating to use. Nobody bothered. Because there's, there's a tipping point when it makes too many errors, you just get irritated. And then, you know, at some point it makes a few errors, but it's very tolerable and it's, it's more serviceable to you. You, you get more benefit from it. Uh, and that's where, that's why we've started seeing it more in the last 10 years. 
that's been used. It's just it reached a tipping point that it was getting a lot more right than wrong. Okay, but tell me about then starting your PhD at the turn of the century. Um, I I could say that I was uh, you know you know looking to invent the next round of AI, but you know arguably I was just looking for a way to stay in college a little longer and kind of <laughs> do a little more messing around research. I liked it. I think I always thought engineering would have been more inventing, you know, before I started. And then sometimes, some depends on the role you get into, it'd be less new exploration and more implementation. So I kind of went back to college to do the PhD. And I think when I was looking at all the different possible role positions that were out there, um, working on something that interfaces with humans was more interesting to me than working on a piece of technology that sits in the middle of a chip, you know, um, and, you know. So what did you start working on? Um, audio-visual speech recognition. So it would be, speech recognition was not great um, back then, really not great, like terrible. Um, and then, especially in noise, the minute there'd be any noise at all, it would just start breaking down. So, you know, if, if they were using it in the car to turn on the temperature or the radio and someone put down the, the window, suddenly it would just stop working. So the idea was to use lip reading. So using image processing uh, to be able to augment what's said. So if you, if you and I are having this conversation and we're in a bar and it's really noisy, you actually subconsciously lip read to make sense of what I'm saying because you may not get all the audio. Um, so we, we, even without being trained, we all lip read a little bit. If I was to cover my mouth while I was speaking in a noisy environment, you would struggle a little more to hear me. Um, so, yeah. So it was kind of like that idea that you would use two streams, uh, multiple modalities, they would call it, like, to augment the performance of speech recognition by integrating um, the two streams of, you know, inf- you know, decisions and stuff like that. At what stage did you decide to turn this into a product and into a business? I went to work for Bell Labs for seven years. So Bell Labs are kind of a research arm of Lucent Technologies of Nice Start. Then it came Alcatel Lucent. Now it's Nokia Bell Labs. Um, we had a, there was a research office here um, in Dublin, um, but I spent a lot of time working with the guys in New Jersey, Summit, New Jersey, the, the Bell Labs office there. And Bell Labs would be really well known in the US, like for for research. Um, so it was kind of like industrial research, kind of bridging the gap between academic blue-sized research and completely applied research. So we used to work on all manner of different projects, uh, kind of quite, you know, some really big stuff, um, some stuff that the business side needed because it was a telecommunications company. Um, And it was probably during my time there, I would have spent a lot of time kind of, unbeknownst to me, more pitching because, you know, I, I used to have these fantastical ideas about stuff we could work on. But it was always quite tangential to what the business was doing. But I'd be pitching that we should be doing research in these areas. And you'd have to pitch the the value proposition, the USP, um, you know. And then invariably somebody, you know, three levels above you would make some big decision to change the direction of the, the research or can research. Or, you know, it just got quite frustrating that you, you weren't the ultimate decision maker. So you decided to go out on your own? Yeah. yeah. And this is how you set up Soapbox? That's exactly, yeah. Exactly. So tell us what Soapbox does. So we build uh, speech recognition, so voice AI kind of if you want, um, for children, very specifically for children. Um, and the reason we do that is because it was actually my daughter who was nearly four at the time. Um, 
I had been, it was back in 2013, so back in the time when, you know, the app store was huge, there was app millionaires, people were producing huge amounts of content for the app store apps. So I was actually downloading like educational apps for my daughter to kind of give her, you know, try not feel guilty by giving her the, the iPad. You know, oh yeah, it's educational, you know. Um, you know, and I kind of research, find good ones. You know, I spend a bit of time going, oh, this is a good one. This was developed by these pedagogy people, blah, blah. Um, but it was, one of them in particular was supposed to teach her how to read. You know, the phonics, like, you know, cat is k at. Yeah. And I was teaching her those sounds and she was flying through it. And, you know, I was getting an email update on her progress and she cleared all these levels. And I was Very like, wow, proud my, mother. my four-year-old's a genius, you know. Um, and then I'd ask her, I'd say, well, what's this sound? She'd just go, I don't know. And I said, what's that sound? I don't know. And then I kind of watched what she was doing and I was like, so it was actually just quite funny. What they would do is they'd play her a sound and give her, you know, the C or the T letter and she'd have to pick one, but it was a little monster and he'd be running along and it was all fun and engaging. So if she got it wrong, they just let her do it again. So she just went, oh. well, it clearly wasn't that one. It must be this one. So she wasn't learning. She was just gaming and, yeah. you know. So I was like, okay, you know, spending, you know, you kind of know intuitively how you teach a kid. You listen to their recall and then you tell them the right and wrong and you feed back. And I was like, well, surely speech recognition could have a role here in teaching a child to read, but also teaching them to learn a language. And there was a lot of automation and personalised learning. So maths, let's say, you'd have two plus two is four. It was very easy for those apps to assess the child's progress, but there was such a gap then with reading. You just need an adult, a helpful adult, as we'd call them, like to sit and listen to a child as we were learning. And you can't do that without... A listening ear so the to me it was very obvious coming from speech recognition that that's a role we could play there um so i just did a lot of research and realized one there wasn't a lot of that there but two anything that was there even in the realm of speech recognition outside of education just didn't work for kids it just and then i'd listen to my child going yeah i get it of course it doesn't work for kids because they don't sound like adults you know, they don't speak like adults. They use the same language as adults. They don't follow the same language rules as adults. They speak more like Yoda than they do um, an adult. And that, all, the, all these elements, and even how a child overemphasizes, whispers, kind of trails off, you know, overpunctuates, things like that, just mess with a system that's built for a very compliant adult. So you've assessed the problem. How do you go about finding and implementing a solution? The first challenge is always data, um, you know, and finding different approaches to to get data and, you know, don't work with children and animals was definitely <laughs> high in the, how the hell are we going to do this? So just trying to figure out different approaches to get kids to engage so you could actually get good data uh, because without data, you don't have good AI and it has to be quality and it has to be diverse and it has to be... So there's all these... I, I'm sorry, presumably it also has to be ethically gathered because if we talk about data protection for adults, what about data protection for children? 100%. So one, the first call I made when I decided I was going to do this was to um, uh, Prevo. These are a safe harbour in the US. So it, everybody thinks GDPR was a leading speed data privacy um, regulation. Actually, COPPA in the US um, preceded that by, by many years, actually by 20. Uh, but in about 2011, they included audio and video and all these um, different me- means of data that you need to get permission 
and very explicit permission from parents before you're allowed to collect data. Parents need to understand what you're doing it for and the ability to opt out. Um, so Prevo, I engaged, and Prevo were a young enough company. There were, I think there, were, there was about five safe harbours um, designated by the Obama administration back in about 2011. Sorry, what does a safe harbour mean? So it's kind of, they do auditing and they'd be able to, to if, if you work with them, they can assess your processes and make sure you're compliant with the regulation. Then you get the stamp of approval if you want uh, to say. So before we ever started anything, I sought out Prevo to help me figure out, could we do this? How do we do it? And how do we do it safely? And how do we do it compliantly? And it definitely wasn't cheaper or faster to do it that way. But at the time, it was 2013, it was like the Wild West of data, right? I mean, there was no such thing as data privacy. Um, and I had this very, you know, I had, I, had, I had kids myself, and I'm like going, well, I don't want anybody just indiscriminately taking their data and using it for whatever and selling it and using it for marketing. So why would any parent want to do that if, if for us? Like, you know, but we very expressly wanted to just use it for speech recognition improvements. So we found a path through it and de developed it, got compliance, um, figured out how to do it in the right way and definitely spent a lot more t time. So could I ask, so what you effectively had to gather is, that, is lots of children's voices. Yeah, I mean, exactly. How many? Oh, well, now I think we're, we're definitely over a million now um, from around the world. And it can't just be from Ireland. That would be a speech recognition system would work for Irish kids. You know, it wouldn't work anywhere else. Like, so the, the very big difference between years ago when I started my PhD, we would have done models for speech recognition for northeastern US accents. There's one model. And then you'd have your southwestern, you know, that's how we built speech recognition. And, and you know, it, it just, you can imagine how badly that worked, you know, get people the wrong accent, not match with the model. But have you effectively now developed a sort of a bot that will talk to a child in that child's voice or something similar, depending on where it is in the world, what language, what dialect, whatever it speaks. Is that what you've done? Oh, sorry. No, no. what we've done is uh, we've developed um, an API. It's, a, it's like a SaaS service that third parties, so our clients, develop apps and online products for kids to teach them to read. Okay. So they, they all compete with each other. They all build very different um, products. Um, but they send the voice data to our API. Our API analyzes it in near real time or, or, or a little bit more than that, depending on how lots of different variables associated with it, um, and then returns it to the app, let's say. So the child would get immediate feedback. Uh, but it's our client that designs the so feedback. So you're, you're doing the architecture for the client, effectively? Yeah, we're it? just doing the, like the, the intelligence inside. We're not anything... We don't do, build any product that's facing the child or the teacher. And then our, our clients will feed back to the teacher. So the teacher will have a dashboard of how all the kids are doing. They can. So if you think about to assess a child for reading, I mean, teachers want to do this, right? They, they, they would like to be able to do it several times a week, you know, but when you've 25, 30 kids in a class, that would take a full day to go around and do assessment on each child. Um, so what they tend to do is once, twice a year to build a picture of how everybody's doing. So if a child's falling behind, they're not getting caught up. So if you asked most educators, what is the one thing you'd like to do to be able to in, improve literacy um, and help kids with reading difficulties and stuff is just to be able to do more assessment, more practice. And it, that's very widely understood that if a child had one-to-one -one interaction every day, they would actually really improve. But 
we're all, everybody's got busy lives. Teachers have huge amounts expected of their time in the classroom. So these types of tools. So you're supplying the equipment to the various companies that then provide the voice that interacts with the child. Yeah, well, they would, it doesn't even have to be a voice. It could just be an app that's showing them k is cat. So when they, no, k at is cat. So when they show the letter C to the child, the child goes k. And they're, you know, and then the system goes, okay, they've learned that sound. Now let's move to the next one, you know, because it automatically um, prompts the child. Or let's say the child a year later is now reading the cat sat on the mat. Our clients present this lovely interface with the child where they're asked to read something. There's a button that hits that starts recording. The child reads it. The audio is sent to our servers. And then we respond with how well the child said the cat sat on the map, but down to the phonetic level. So down to if they mispronounce the ah sound, it would highlight that. And then the teacher will know where the child is struggling. Given what you said earlier, that you went into engineering almost with a sort of belief that it would allow you to invent. How proud are you, though, of what you have managed to invent? Oh, hugely. I mean, you know, and I haven't done this alone. Like, I've, we've built an amazing team. And some of the team have been with me since, like, 2015. Like, you know, we've, you know, we have uh, 37 people here in Dublin now. Like, so what we've built together. So we didn't just do that, but we also took an approach that, um, an equity-based approach as well, right? So we'll get into ethical AI in a minute. Like, but um, when I started the company, I was in New York at the time. And I remember you know, kind of looking at a friend's kid was starting in a school in New York City and just making the observation that if you were in that classroom, you'd probably only get like 30% New York accents. You're going to get accents from all over the world. If we're going to bother doing this at all, it has to work for everybody. It has to work for all those kids, whether they're Irish, English, Indian, Mexican, Canadian, you know, where, any part of the US, it just has to work for them. Um, so what we've done a lot, and one thing we're all very proud of, is that the system works well for all accents and dialects, so there's no discrimination within it. So, because you, could you imagine, like, you bring this technology into the classroom, the system's working really well for half the class, but then there's some cohorts in the class where every time they speak, it tells them they're right when they're wrong, or they're wrong when they're right, which is hugely damaging to confidence, to education, and so... Bringing AI to the classroom, it does a huge amount of responsibility on you. You know, the bar is pretty high there, not just in the accuracy you have to deliver, but in the equity as well, because you could actually make things worse. Well, then doesn't that then put an awful lot of burden on you in deciding on who you will actually have as clients? Because you have to be presumably satisfied that the way they apply your technology in their products and services is ethical. Yeah, they, we, we do a lot around the data privacy aspect of the contracts and stuff than what's expected of the client um and also we don't we're we're b2b and you know we don't deal with hundreds of thousands of clients we deal with like you know we've got 50 we know them well or you know we're building that client base and some of them are really big guys some of them are much smaller but we know them like you know we have business development relationships with them which some people in business say is the best type of business to have that when you actually have a small number of customers like that. I know some people feel that to grow, you need to have multiple customers. But actually, if you sort of have a stepping stone approach like that, 
it's much easier to run a business and develop it. Well, yeah, you, it's different, right? Because, so, you know, how you run it is very much um, building on the business development, these relationships. Um, you know, so some of those big guys, they don't just have one product we're going to be integrated in. They've got products across their whole portfolio. Arguably, you could have this in maths and geography. Like Kids are answering questions and, and interacting using their voice. It's not just about reading and language learning anymore. Our technology has been used by some of those companies for dyslexia screening, which I think is one of the coolest applications that you don't have to wait till a child is eight or ten to figure out they've got dyslexia. They do these screenings as kids are four and five before they ever even enter school because the the problem with dyslexia is sequencing. Um, and it's one of the issues now. I don't pretend to understand, <laughs> pretend I understand any of, all of it. But, you know, a kid reading a sentence, you can actually show them, uh, you know, tree, ball, dog, house, you know, and when they use their voice to do it, integrate in one of our client software, you can, they can start to pick up signs of dyslexia before a child can ever even read. Could you imagine how much early intervention would help the child's confidence, their ability to catch up with their peers, get the right um, tools to help them? Those cool things you can do when you bring that at scale, you know. How did you develop it as a business, though? Because that's a completely different skill and that's not one that you necessarily had training in, was it? No, I suppose most entrepreneurs, you just have to wear, you wear many hats and, and you hire really well <laughs> if you know what you're doing. You know, in the beginning, you're doing everything yourself um, and you're trying to get it over the line, you're making decisions. You're, and then I would say the biggest thing you do or you should do is is to hire well and spend. And, and, and when you do try it's always hard when it's your business and you're starting out to delegate you know delegate and then let people the really smart people you've hired do their job you know and I would say the best thing the thing I'm most proud of is the the team who we've hired but does that mean that you don't do as much of the engineering or software development yeah now anymore? completely yeah yeah absolutely. And do you miss that I don't know this, I just like challenges I guess I just kind of I, I think doing something different and pushing all the time into different areas I find that interesting so the technology is interesting uh, really interesting the premise of it but then all the other challenges that come with building a business were kind of fascinating as well and what about financing it how much money has it needed and how did you manage to raise that money uh, we've raised over God, I think it's about 11 million euro across public and private financing so in the early days we did um, grants uh, so we would couple private financing with, um, you know, European grant funding, some R&D financing here in Ireland. Um, in the early, early days, like in the beginning, when I was financing it myself, um, I then spun into Trinity College Dublin as part of uh, Comms Fund, Communication um, Commercialisation Fund, to be able to kind of incubate the idea. And actually, that was really early because at that point, and it is one of the issues with venture in general is that people are very reluctant to fund something unless it's making money. Um, you know, it's kind of the proof points for everybody's the making of the money. Um, and it's very difficult for people to invest in concepts that are going to take two years to develop. And that's a problem with AI in general, right? So if you're actually wanting to, if, if we in Ireland want to invest in AI technology, we have to start to take a step back and understand what are the steps. It'd be, it'd be much more akin to biotech or medtech, that you invest deeper 
um, and a little longer, um, but the gains are much bigger, ideally, at the other end. You need to have money that's prepared to take a gamble that yeah. might be lost. Yeah, yeah, risk. I mean, in Europe in general, we, we trail the US hugely in, in our, the appetite for risk when it comes to venture. And that's something the EU have been trying to address through some of their the grant funding and the SMEI funding. And it's still, we're not there yet. Like, But when you have a motivation to provide a service that you can see will do a lot of good, how do you balance that with a motivation to make money? I think you can do both. I think you can build an ethical business. And my, and I think that's one thing I'd, I I hope people will learn from our story as well as, you know, that. and I try and talk about it as much as I can. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You know, you can actually build a business. And it's good when you do, because then you'll get more investors to invest in business. Because look, if you think about it, right, you could say, oh, it's ethical and you're just doing the right thing. We actually built product that works for everybody. So now when our when we try and compete, when we're not trying to compete, when we compete, we lead in the US. We're actually known as the provider of speech recognition. We've seen off so much competition. Over the years, other startups have gone out of business um, because when people come to us, they know immediately that we our privacy st- data privacy stance. We're very clear. We've been clear about that since the beginning. And the equity stance. So if you're going to choose a product, let's say you're going to choose your provider of speech recognition, and one of them has proven on eth- equity, is proven on data privacy, and the other one kind of a little bit grey about those things or doesn't know or hasn't done any testing, which one would you choose? Because your reputation as an education, let's say, technology company, you've built your brand, you've built it, and now you're going to introduce some AI into this and bring it into the classroom. Wouldn't you choose the one that works for everybody? Um, you know, cost definitely comes into those decisions, but equally, it's, 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 it would be risky. So I would advocate that anybody building AI you probably should think about it as a thing because if your competition takes that approach um, and then you're up against them, how are you going to compete if you've never done that? Not necessarily the best technology always wins out though because sometimes it's the weight of money behind the chosen technology that can win out. And so it's the classic example that goes back to the time when who remembers VHS recorders uh, yeah, yes. and the Betamax? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We use that a lot in, in, in our... We talk about that a lot in our business because going, yeah, you're right, right? It doesn't always win out but that was slightly different technology this is about it potentially not working for let's say in the US nearly 50% of the population so if you're talking about bias to racial bias and stuff like that and accents and dialects and stuff like that that's a lot bigger because people often say that to me they can they can't talk about yeah yeah it's great to do bias but that's more outliers it's not outliers it's actually a massive population because sometimes the issue is the data that a lot of AI has been built on, has been built on the predominant users of the internet to date. And it's going to skew very heavily to US white male, actually. You know, so all accents, other gen, you know, female age actually can be, you know, as well as race and accent and, and, and dialects and stuff like that. So it's not, we're not talking about outliers here, you know. I'm actually just laughing at the idea that we're both talking about VHS and Betamax, which is completely redundant almost, given that in the battle of whatever technology would take over, that technology itself became redundant as streaming replaces it. So things move very, very quickly. But in relation to the whole profit thing as well, and as we speak here today, it'll be some time before people get to hear this but there's this big debate about open ai and but one of the big things about open ai was this idea that it wouldn't be for profit that artificial intelligence is something that 
should be applied for the betterment of mankind. What do you make of that whole argument? My understanding was that they would cap the profit as opposed to not be profitable. <laughs> so, if, yeah, and I think that's that's a lot of the problems. I imagine where we are today with it. Um, I think the problem a bit, and we talked a little bit earlier about the, the expert systems and then the, the generative AI. The other part we didn't mention was the next step is the AGI, was the artificial general intelligence. That's the super intelligence. That's the bit that people get freaked out about. And that's where a lot of the conversation, but the problem is we're conflating them all together at the moment, right? And we probably shouldn't be. Um, what people are wondering is, is some of those generative AI systems showing signs of intelligence. Most people in the field would believe not, um, but we don't know. And, and I think the key to this is all of us have been working in this area for decades, have to admit we are not on the inside of those companies. You know, OpenAI have had $11 billion of funding made available to them. Right. $11 billion as against your $11 million. Exactly, right? Very different. Um, but huge amounts of that are to do with the compute power that's needed. These, this is not something you can do without huge amounts of money. Um, and the idea around OpenAI in the beginning anyway, and Elon Musk has come out very strongly against it since he left and a lot of other people, is that what does it mean to do right for humanity? Is it just to say, I'm going to create technology and I believe the technology will be good, um, but a lot of people are concerned about alignment and alignment means you know aligning AI goals with human goals and um, putting guardrails on it to keep it safe, that we as humans stay in control. Um, and that is something... For anybody to fall down on one side or the other of that argument at this point is it's a little early. We don't, you can't say definitively it will not co cause any problems or you can't say definitively that it will because we don't know and we don't know what's happening behind the closed doors all over the world. Yeah, Elon Musk was one of those signatures or signatories last May, I think it was, this big document, whole lot of people involved, almost saying call a pause or call a halt to the development and what struck me about that was, was, okay, if certain actors decide, yes, we will, others will just plough on regardless, won't they? And then you leave yourself not just at a competitive disadvantage, but it could be that bad actors will take control and then use AGI to their own uses against other... It could become a political weapon in some yeah. respects, couldn't it? Yeah, at the moment, the way it is at the moment, when we, when we talk about... There are very few people who can do this now because of the compute power. I mean, OpenAI and those guys are losing money hand over fist at the moment. Like, you know, it costs arguably billions every quarter, I think, to run these. Like, you know, I mean, I think recent analysis. So it's not like anybody can just take it. Yeah, but could it be like the, the Russians, like they would have invested in the space race? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That this yeah, is yeah. what Russia or China or other countries will say, we'll put as much money, lose as much money for the time being to become the superpower right. in this particular type of endeavour. Yeah, that, that's possible. But I think everybody, the, the arguments tend to run like that a lot, right? You know, regulation stifles innovation. We can't let China and Russia win, all that. But I don't think I've really heard that many people talk about And then what? Right? Okay, let's get to AGI. Great. We bet them. Now what? You know, what happened, like, you did it, you may have, like, you know, uh, cut corners, you may have put some safety issues at risk, but you bet them. But now what? Because arguably the problem that we're all discussing is 
losing control of the AI and what happens, right? So it's not like it's going to happen. Nobody knows. It could be 50 years away. It could be, could be five, could be two. We don't know. But what now, I think, is a bit of a question okay. we need to debate a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, I suppose the fear people have is that the machines will become intelligent, will be more intelligent than the humans. The machines will then start making decisions for the benefit of the machines rather than from the humans they're supposed to serve. Right, and that's where we talk about the guardrails, right? That's where the safety, alignment, all those things. And there's some fantastic minds working on this. So there was the UK AI Safety Summit two weeks ago, um, and it was very much focused on, on, on those aspects, which, you know, some people wouldn't agree with, but some people would say we shouldn't be focusing on that. You know, we should talk about the immediate concerns, which are all about, you know, safety, bias, data, all these things that are going to cause problems, misinformation, disinformation, elections coming up next year. There are immediate problems we need to be talking about. Um, but then there's these much bigger ones around bioterrorism, cybersecurity, um, you know, alignment issues, things like that. Um, what gives me comfort in some ways is that a year ago, six months ago, or even earlier this year, people were still arguing against any regulation. They were like, we don't need it, trust us, it'll be grand. Like, um, you know, and that's never worked before. Um, so, but now it seems very clear the Biden administration came out very strongly saying, um, you know, basically all, you know, all their public services basically will be, there will be controls over to anybody using AI, which will actually, it's such going to be such big um, kind of onus on these big companies to prove themselves to be able to be used in um, kind of federal government that they will then likely have to deal with it in the private sector too. So it will go, Congress has to legislate before it can actually be affecting private companies. The EU are firing ahead with the AI laws. There is a lot of harmonisation. It's not perfect, but there's a lot of harmonisation. And the UK as well. So what we're beginning to see is there will be regulation. So I think we've moved on from the conversation, should we regulate? I think we've all accepted will. Now the conversation is, well, what type of regulation? And then how do you get various parts of the world to align yeah. in regulation? Because the EU might decide one thing, the United States something else, China something else again. Exactly. But, you know, most people, well, a good few people who've heard talking about this make a very good point. China doesn't want uncontrolled AI. That's, you know, uncontrolled. See, if you think about what is the actual risk, it's, if it's uncontrolled AI, that doesn't behoove anybody. If you're in government, you know, you're not going to want an uncontrolled, you know, by definition, it's uncontrollable. Like, so, you know, that's not necessarily going to help you, um, you know, either. So there are, you know, people are thinking a little bit bigger about this. It's not, it's not just a race to win the fastest internet speed or something like that, that they're going to take. This is a race to get to AGI. If, if it was a race to get to AGI, and then what? Okay, just a couple of things I want to ask you about, though. Again, and this is just such a big topic, we're only going to scratch the surface. But there are many people worried about the loss of jobs. Now, this has been, I suppose, from the time of the Industrial Revolution, there's always been developments which mean that jobs have been lost, but other jobs have been created. And people and economies react to whatever is actually happening. So the fear now is we, we, we've spoken on this podcast with guests previously about things like um, automated driving and 
air, aircraft that don't need pilots. So those are sort of pilots and taxi drivers and delivery drivers potentially all going out of work. And people go, oh, yeah, well, okay. But now the fear, I suppose, is to better paid professional classes that suddenly accountancies, solicitors, media, all sorts of work could be lost. And then the fear is, well, much jobs will be left if AI takes over. Yeah. I mean, look, they're, I think they're very real concerns and I don't think people should downplay them. I think some people believe you sh- you know, that there'll be jobs created we haven't even thought about yet. If you go back 20, 30 years, probably half our professions weren't in existence. Podcasting <laughs> didn't exist. Um, but then there's a very real risk that there will be a gap. Like, And then how do we address that? So again, this is, it's so new. I don't think... Um, I don't think anybody is ta- is not taking this seriously. I think if you look at what happened in the US with the screenwriters um, strike and stuff like that, and they, you know, I thought one really interesting thing that came out of it saying that they couldn't fill scenes with AI-generated extras. Um, you know, that was one of the demands. But that because that would arguably put a lot of actors yeah. out of work and stuff like that. So it's it's about acknowledging the world we're in now. Um, and the policy makers and the politicians like sitting down and trying to figure out how do you work in a world in five, ten years' time if you've got record profits but less work. Yeah, the, the actor's strike is an interesting one because that brings in all issues as well about using AI for de-aging people and using them even after they're dead in movies. Oh, yeah. I was probably more interested in the whole issue in relation to the creativity in writing because I'm discussing this with writers and suggesting about what AI would come up with something as brilliant as the plot lines and the dialogue of succession, as an mm. example? And they said, yes, but look at all the other television, which is formulaic. Yeah. So if you had a sort of a CSI, there's, you know, there, it's the same program almost with little twists. And you could actually program to do a sort of a CSI clone very easily. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think... And that's where it'll probably come in. It'll be the quality and the and the human touch and the emotion and the creativity and the sparks of it that will. So maybe yeah. I mean that's the problem, isn't it? A lot of mediocre, <laughs> the stuff in the middle. That but, but it's bread and butter stuff as well for a lot of people. Like you know. And then the other aspect to it, which has fascinated me, and this I suppose goes a little bit towards Mark Zuckerberg's uh, metaverse although I'm not sure that that's actually taking off in the way that he would have wanted. But this use of chatbots to become friends almost, mm. that people develop relationships with chatbots to compensate for the absence of people, but then worryingly that these chatbots only act as reinforcement for bad ideas that they may have. There was one example I came across of an individual who's now serving nine years in prison in England because after his conversations with his chatbot, he decided he wanted to get into King Charles's uh, palace and kill the king. And his conversations with the chatbot were all encouraging. Yeah, man, you go, you do what you want. That's See, this is the thing about unintended consequences. Nobody sat in the, any of those companies developing those chatbots and decided this is what was going to happen. The problem is with guardrails, they didn't put any safeguards in to make sure it wouldn't. And this is the problem we're in at the moment. We're in a bit of a the Wild West where we know there'll be issues in skills. We know there's issues on safety and advice. But if you if you don't uh, force people <laughs> in, in some ways to think and invest in guardrails and safety to do it, 
there's a race going on. There's a, there's, you know, there's a, there's a race to bring products to market. There's a race. People are going to be commercially driven if there's no other incentives to make, uh, slow, you know, to slow down and just put in some guardrails. But, but let's talk the positives as well, because even that last example I gave you, I can still see the positive things about having chatbots that maybe somebody who's lonely mm. or elderly who has uh, some speaker that they can talk to and get conversation coming back, that, that might actually be a good thing. And that the data that is actually gathered may bring enormous benefits in healthcare, for example. Oh, huge. I mean, look, you know, something like elder care and people wanting to stay in their home longer, you know, that's automation of it. And, you know, people might be perfectly capable, but there's help there. And like you're saying, whether it's a friend or just, you know, a helper in the house, like, you know, allow them. Healthcare is huge. I think it's one of those areas that, you know, along with education, and, and actually climate change, I think, will have huge benefits. So, again, we go back to narrow AI, generative AI and AGI. You know, the narrow AI stuff that's been going on for years in in healthcare is, ma- is going to make huge strides. I think, you know, the COVID vaccine, some of them were actually accelerated by, by, by the use of AI, being able to get them tested to market quicker. You know, so we're going to be able to see and solve problems and and diseases and 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 predict preventative medicine and prediction and stuff so much better because of this and it's not new just because chat gpt came into our world this year does not mean this stuff hasn't been in development for decades you know and given that you were appointed by the government as ireland's first ai ambassador what does that say about the knowledge within official government circles as to the importance of this and how Ireland needs to position itself? Yeah, look, it, it was very, uh, you know, the thinking of putting in a strategy in 21 and appointing the ambassador role and it being, they were looking for an expert in AI as opposed to being a political appointment. Look, that's actually, you know, you know in Europe, it was kind of leading um, you know, well, well regarded. Anyway, the, it, there's a lot of different variations in how different governments went about this. I think the idea here was, you know, there's two, two a couple of different sides to this. One is, my role was to help demystify AI and educate people on AI. That was like, let's start a conversation. You know, we don't need to do that anymore. Um, but it was also, so it was to help. And I, for me, I think you asked me in the beginning, you know, am I a, an ambassador for AI? I'm an ambassador for ethical AI. I took the role because there was an ethical AI approach in the strategy. If there hadn't been, I, I don't know how I would have felt about it. You know, um, I believe AI is important, but I, I believe ethical, it, the only approach is ethical AI. I just don't, I just don't see another approach to this. So the idea is to help people understand it. And I think in Ireland, people are very curious and always have been curious about these uh, such subjects. So it means people are, you know, people are listening. People want to have a conversation. Businesses need to listen, like, to it. There is, what I see a bit of a problem happening at the moment, there's a lot of fear about AI, largely about AGI, um, but also about, like, you know, issues around bias and things I think are very serious and going to impact a lot of people's lives if they're not um, addressed and addressed quickly. Uh, Disinformation, misinformation, all that. They're real fears. But the problem with those fears is it will also mean the businesses won't look at AI. Sometimes they're too fearful because they just hear negative and they're fearful too. But the problem is your competitors, whether they're in Ireland or globally, because Ireland does compete quite well globally, will be looking at AI um, and maybe coming up with new products, innovations and things like that. So 
I think the idea you have to strike is to be informed is probably the best thing you could do. Um, to look at your business going, is there some aspect of my business that will be killed by somebody else rocking up on AI? And, you know, or, you know, am I going to continue to be able to compete if my, if my competitors use it? Which sort of make, leads me to believe that this is just inevitable, that the door has been opened and it can't be shut again. Yeah, I think I think we're there. You, if you shut off your your North Korea, like when it comes to and to be honest, we're we're global. Like, I mean, how do you shut off something? Like, you know, do we all stop using Netflix? But does that mean as well though that we are then dependent on how effect multinationals apply it in Ireland? That it's not something that this state or any state is actually going to be in control of. That it's going to very much be corporations that with the money who actually develop all of this. Yes, that's essentially what's happening. Like, so I think there's a huge argument, you know, and this is why we come back to the regulation, you know, and Ireland will play an outsized role as we did in data privacy and GDPR and the data, uh, the data protection office here um, will be the same with AI because we will be the point of um, that, which the technology in Europe, because we're headquarters here. So it's supposed to be the point of destination um, where the regulation happens. It will likely be in Ireland, but that's still up for negotiation. Um, so Ireland will play an outsized role here in the regulation. Now, we're not doing anything different to Europe. We're taking the same stance as Europe on this. So AI, AGI, generative AI, it's all happening and it's all inevitable. But will it make our lives better? I will say if, if we take the right approach. Um, I have think there's huge benefits to this. Um, it would... What I've heard this year, um, the UK AI Summit, the Biden administration coming out, the EU AI Act, without all that, I don't know how I'd feel about I would. I have a very different answer for you. I feel there's a big if. It's not just if, if we put in the right regulation, but it's also how we implement the regulation. So under-resourced regulation, creating bottlenecks, creating problems, giving people reason to push back against regulation because we haven't resourced the regulators well enough. Um, I think there's a big, if there, there's an opportunity. Um, and I think most people, even a lot of those people who sign those letters, those statements, um, if you listen to what they're actually saying, they're not saying it's the negative thing is going to happen. They're just saying it could happen. And can we all please pay attention and have a conversation about this rather than everybody saying nothing to see here. We, we messed up with social media, right? We totally dropped the ball on that. Everybody prevaricated for way too long on it. And we know it causes problems with teenage girls, mental health. There is still no regulation over that. Like, you know, and this is technology that's so much more powerful. AI powers the social media. It's going to get better. You know, and because we didn't do it there, I think we all need to pay attention to the fact that if we don't take this seriously, you know, you and I having this conversation in five years' time, it'll be very different. Um, you know, if we don't want to be looking back and being regretful. It is a good time to be able to regulate it now. I actually think OpenAI going public with their ChatGPT when they did was actually great because it was right at a time when the EU were coming to finalising the, the text. It never mentioned generative AI in there once. It didn't mention foundation models once. That's how crazy all this was. Those terms weren't even in our vocabulary, even in, re you know, people in the AI sphere, it wasn't in our vocabulary. Um, and they're there now. It's still being negotiated. That's why it's all slipped a little bit. But it was kind of good, right? It got, the, the, becoming into the public sphere allowed us to capture it in the EU AI Act and, and, and for all other regulators as well. 
Is there anything important that I've missed in this conversation that I should have asked you about? <laughs> God, I think we, like you said earlier, we've it, it's only scratched the surface. I think I said a couple of months ago when I was speaking, um, you know, are we still going to be talking about open AI in six months after everything that's happened this weekend? And I know you said this podcast won't go out immediately, but how relevant are open AI going to be um, after all that news? Who else is going to come into play here? It's... It's moving so fast that the conversation every six months will be completely different. Well, that's maybe the last thing I'll ask you about, so is that, and I think this is the difficulty perhaps that you might have in your role, is that how difficult is it to get people engaged with this as a reality of their lives now and their lives for the future without them becoming fearful or without them thinking this is all just too big and too complicated for me to understand? I mean, look, I think education is everything. And I think, you know, particularly everybody, you know, your listeners here are curious about it. And I think people in Ireland always have been curious about technology. Go try it out, go use it. Um, you know, one thing I, w- I will mention is that Ireland are, we're about to convene a, an AI expert council that will advise, advise cross government. And that's going to be people from lots of different uh, expertise that's going to be convened in the, in the next month. Um, you know, and I think knowing that, you know, particularly here in Ireland, we're treating it very seriously by putting in all these different steps, um, educating and asking questions, like continuing to ask questions and ask, you know, this is, we're scratching the surface here. There's a lot more to come. So it's not like everybody go, okay, that's AI. And I'll go back about my, my life. You know, it will keep changing and, and it, there will be new innovations and there will be new conversations. Um, so just, you know, that, that attention, I think is really important that the public have to this topic. Patricia Scanlon, thank you. And that's it for our latest edition of Magnified. We hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, We have loads of other guests coming in future weeks and there's a big back catalogue that you may have missed as well. If you liked it, please recommend it to a friend. Send them a link. You can listen to the podcast at Spotify, Apple or wherever it is you get your podcasts, such as the Go Loud app. So until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you very much for listening and thanks again to our friends at Strategic Power Connect for helping us with this. Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect Go Loud Sounds better with us